Greetings again in Jesus' name this evening. Good to be here. Trust that you've had a good day, and God will sustain my voice. It's not feeling the best, but I usually have a way of somehow plowing through and getting through it. Maybe I'll just have to whisper in the morning. We don't know. We'll see what God gives. As we start tonight, the video, I went to play a video last night, and it's about the finger of God, and they're crying out, and how God was destroying the gods of Egypt. And this temple, Ray Vanderlaan, who's been my teacher for where I got started, and he's doing, he does these videos from Egypt and Israel and also in Turkey about the early church. And so he goes into this temple, this little temple with all the gods inside, the inscriptions of the paintings of all the gods inside, and he challenges the gods. And what happened is when he went in, his mic didn't work. So they came back up, they rewired him, he went in, his mic didn't work again. And so I think the third time they had three sets of mics, microphones, none of them worked. As soon as he got inside the building, it didn't work. So they, something was starting to happen and they started getting goosebumps and uh, if you watch the faces of these people inside, it's pretty scary because it was a direct attack from the devil yet. They finally hardwired him put a wire on him, and that's the way he could then record what he was doing inside. So this is the setting of this little video clip, about eight-minute video clip. So watch that and see what you think about it and the challenge of who is God anyway today. Let's see what happens. I'm going to... I think I'll take this microphone and just lay it here. God really, really angry when someone, something, causes chaos in the lives of others. He hates idolatry, says that in the Bible. Idolatry creates chaos. So when God comes into a situation where there's someone crying out because someone or something has caused chaos, he becomes very angry. So the Bible says in Exodus and in Numbers, that God executed judgment on the Egyptian gods. Now, in some sense, none of this, none of these, these carvings all over, Hathor up there, the cow, none of these are gods. They're stones, sticks, Jeremiah will say. But in another sense, the Bible is clear that behind the gods of the nations are demons. So in the book of Deuteronomy, the sacrifices you offered are offered to demons, Moses says. Paul will quote that or at least refer to it in Corinthians to the people in Corinth. So there is a real struggle going on here. And when it came time for God to say, I'm going to act, his action was directed not first of all against Pharaoh. That'll come. Not first of all against the Egyptians. Certainly not against the Israelites, but against the gods of all these temples. And those plagues, we call them, were more than just natural phenomenon that he caused to show how powerful he was. They do that big time. 
but they are clearly addressed against the powers that had caused the chaos. But I think he has more than one purpose in those plagues. You remember over at the Ramesseum, we asked, Pharaoh, are you listening? Egypt, are you listening? What would they have heard as the plagues happened? Come, let me show you something. sanctuary of this little Hathor temple and like you might expect there's a whole collection of the gods of Egypt who for God's people have created suffering and oppression and chaos carved on the walls are many of the gods and goddesses and now his Hebrew people are suffering because of these gods at least, he says through Moses, I will execute judgment on the gods of Egypt. So God came and in some sense addressed the gods very specifically. So, which of you, which of you will stand before the God of the Bible. How about you, Osiris? The Nile is your bloodstream, they say. Will you stand before him? How about tomorrow? The Nile is blood. Stretch out your stick, Moses. Osiris is not God. How about you, Peket, frog-headed goddess of childbirth? Will you stand? How about tomorrow a plague of frogs comes? And you, Geb, god of the earth? How about tomorrow out of the dust come lice until you can't stand it anymore? Anyone else? What about you, Hathor? Cow goddess who nurses the pharaohs? How about you? Tomorrow, the cattle of the Egyptians will die. How about you, Seth, god of storm? Will you stand? Tomorrow, the hail will destroy the barley. And men of fertility, will you challenge the creator of the world? The locusts will come and eat what's left, and the wheat besides. And how about you, Amun-Ra, god of the sun? Will you stand before me 
about its dark for three days. Because the creator of the universe said so. Are you listening? Are you hearing me? How about you, Nehbet, protector of Pharaoh and especially the crown prince? Must I challenge you too? Will you stand before the God of the universe? Are you listening? This time, no one heard the cries, and clearly to an Egyptian, the gods, they had seen and understood to be the creators and controllers of the universe, could not stand the presence of the gods of Moses. But there's another side to the plagues. There's another audience. Because the Hebrews are watching too. And we learned that they too had been drawn to those gods. So what were they hearing? Come. Let me show you. So the question was, Israel, are you listening? Are you hearing me? Not only are you hearing that my power is beyond all these gods here in this sanctuary, but are you hearing what I want to go out there to do? What I want you to go out there to be? think, at least at some point, they listened. But Pharaoh didn't. And then God said, Moses, you're going to have to go back to Pharaoh once more. Because he's not listening yet. Let's go with him. Come. I think we're in the same battle today. The gods are still out there trying to or thinking they can overcome the God of this universe. It won't happen. Found out if I don't do this right, I mess up things.
Okay. So, thoughts on last night. We talked about how that God destroyed the gods of Egypt. And with that, he destroyed Egypt. Have you ever thought about it? There's nothing left. The cattle, the firstborn, all the food, everything was gone. And history says they never, ever recouped from that. Egypt has never, ever been the same. Still in poverty today. To go in Egypt, to go to Egypt into Cairo is, is a nightmare. I mean, it's a mess. Millions of people and no place to go, and, and it's poverty all over the place. It's unreal. So they never recouped from this. And I don't know why people or why we can't learn from history, but so often we can't. It seems like we can't. So let's continue our journey. And we left Egypt, so we're going to go from the land of bondage to the land of freedom. Let's go to Sinai, and then I want to I tie that together, Sinai, and I don't know where we're going to get to because it's loaded tonight. There's so much that I want to share and tie together and see if we can find how that Sinai, how that God went to Sinai and what he did there will tie together with Jesus himself and the story of Jesus that will, I think, be powerful for us. First, before, I, I thought this would fit well with that video, with the challenge of those gods. So often we think those things are powerful when they're really not. But what's within us, if the life of Christ is within us, we're filled with the Spirit of God, there is something within us that is much more powerful than thousands of gods together. And I found out that as well in India. India has 350,000 gods, I think it is. It's insane. Every time you turn a corner, there's another shrine with a god and music blaring. It, being there for one month was exhausting. I don't know how they lived there. So every night you hear this banging of, of some kind of music. And you know it's some shrine here, some shrine there. Every corner seemed to have them. Another God. That's the God of strength, the God of all this. That God of power, God of wealth. Anyway, this tree is called an aurora tree. These trees grow out in the desert. They maybe way out in the middle of the desert where there is no rain. But yet they're green. Because they say their roots go way down deep and they can find moisture. They go down till they find moisture and they remain green. And this, has, this tree has a fruit on it. It looks something like this. That is actually a fruit, an aurora fruit. And you can go pick this fruit and imagine yourself, you're out in the desert. And if you don't have water, you die. That's why you die in the desert. Because of the cold and the heat, the difference, at night it gets really cold, and at daytime it gets really, really warm. And if you run out of water, you're, you're just finished. And so imagine... You're looking for water. You see this tree, and you come up to the tree, and you see this fruit, and you ask your leader, can I pick it? And the leader would say, sure, go ahead. And you, you pick this fruit, and you squeeze it. Oh, it's full. It, sound, it just seems like it's full of juice. So you open it up. And when you open it up, it's a little puff of smoke or dust. And there's nothing inside. Actually, what's inside is deadly. They would put it on arrows to shoot hyenas. And if they would penetrate a hyena, it would kill a hyena. That's how poisonous it was. 
It's called a Sodom apple. The Jews call it a Sodom apple. It kills. The picture I get from that is we often look so good on the outside, but it's really what's on the inside that counts and what's truly who we are. We talked about buildings. You know, God doesn't live in a building, but He lives in the people that walk in the building. We talk about we come to uh, God's house. No, this is not God's house. You are God's house. We just come together in a building. So, but who are you? Do you look pretty on the outside, but when someone opens you up, it's not appetizing or it's not inviting? Let's check ourselves. Sometimes I think we all have like an aurora tree sometimes. We don't have things inside that are really, we don't want anybody to mess with right now. We're all that way. But then God wants to come in and clean us up. And he wants to make us fruitful and prosperous. Let's all stand and say the Shema together again. Tonight, we're going to say it together. Okay? Let's say it loud and clear. You You can say it loud and clear. And it's just, again, the way it sounds, uh, the, the way the name is spelled is the way it sounds. So let's say it together. We'll say the English together, okay? Oh, I forgot. <clears throat> Remember last night we talked about the finger of God? It doesn't say the small finger, but it implies as the little finger of God. His little finger is powerful enough. He can do bring storms. He can do earthquakes. It's his little finger. That's how the scholars interpret that. So what we always do after I get to that, we we raise our little finger and implying this is God's finger in a sense, or we trust that God's finger is in control. But if you're uncomfortable to do that, you don't have to do that. I'm not anymore. I've done it so often, it doesn't make me uncomfortable because I'm going to claim to be a follower of Jesus. And one way I can do that is this way. So as we say the Shema, Let's raise our little finger. Shema Israel, Adonai Eloheinu, Adonai Echad, Ve'ahavta et Adonai Eloecha, Bechol Levavka, Ubechol Shaka, Ubechol Meodecha, Ve'ahavta Le'riacha Kamocha, Amen. <clears throat> Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your might, and love your neighbor as yourself. Amen. Let's say these words together. This is what the Lord says. I remember the devotion of your youth, how as a bride you loved me and followed me through the wilderness, through the land that sown. I will betroth you forever. Uh, excuse me, let's go back and miss the word. I will betroth you to me forever. I will betroth you in righteousness and justice, in love and compassion. I will betroth you in faithfulness, and you will acknowledge the Lord. Thank you. You may be seated. I always thought they wandered through the wilderness, and in a sense they did, but look at this verse out of Jeremiah. He said, you followed me through the wilderness like a bride. That's interesting. So they had a shepherd in a sense, 
Moses was shepherding them through the wilderness. They, I think they also wondered because they didn't believe they could go into the land. But I, that, I like that. They followed me through the wilderness. God is since saying that to the children of Israel. They followed me through the wilderness. And then I will betroth you in righteousness. And that's part of those four. Remember those four promises in Exodus chapter 6. It's part of those four promises. Maybe tonight if we get there far enough, we'll get to those again. So imagine taking a few hundred thousand people in a land like this. This is how it looked. They think they could have actually come up this ravine which was down, way down in the south part of Israel. Not sure, but there again, you can look out. It's just a vast and barren land. So God took them across the Red Sea or through the Red Sea, and then they journeyed another, it was almost 40 days, about 40 days till they got to Sinai, which I don't know, this is an artist's rendering of Sinai. And now this story happens, and some stories that happen here that I think tie together, and we'll try to tie stories together from the old and the new here. Moses goes up, and God talks to Moses. Remember one time when Moses was up, he said he was up on the mountain about six days, and then the seventh day, the cloud comes down. Is there any story that this story connects to later on? After six days, we read it in the, in the Gospels, I think it's Luke, that we read it, it says, after six days, what happened? About Jesus, remember, he had just come down from Caesarea Philippi, and they were going south, and it says after six days, where did they go? And what came down? Mount of, Mount of Transfiguration. Isn't that interesting? Moses waits six days, God comes down and speaks in the seventh day, after six days, Jesus goes up on the Mount of Transfiguration and God comes down. Story produces story. Story ties story together. I think it's a beautiful story. Again, another story that happens here is, oh, excuse me, I, I should have brought this in. That's the Mount of Transfiguration, or oh, they think it is. It could be there or it could be all the way north on the mount, up to Mount Hermon. Moses is up on the mountain again. And he comes back down with the law, and there was something going on. They had made a little golden calf. Remember the story. Oh, Aaron said, we threw this gold in the fire, and it came out a calf. Like baloney. It did not come out a calf. He fashioned a calf. Why would they do that? Well, well, this Moses, he went up on a mountain. We don't know what. Evidently, they liked the gods of Egypt quite well we got to have something to worship. They were not free from Egypt yet. So they made this golden calf. And Moses comes down and he is angry with them. How many people die when that happens? He said to the, to the Levites, take your swords and go through. And whoever has done this, kill them. How many died? Story produces story. Years later, something happens again, 40 days after something else happens. 
and the same amount of people are raised up that died 1,300 years before. How many was it? Should I just leave you hang there for a while? Let you think about it. What's so intriguing about this, think, keep thinking about it, because when they were, on, they were in the temple, I, I like to think the temple steps is where they were at when this happened. Remember they were in the temple worshiping God because they were, they were informed to do so, and if you do this for 10 days, something will happen. Someone gets up and starts preaching. <clears throat> what's so ironic about, th keep thinking about it, I'll tell you then, keep thinking about what's really ironic about this, when Moses was up on the mountain, God was giving him what we call the law, the Ten Commandments, the marriage or the wedding vows. I call it the wedding vows, not just Ten Commandments. Ten Commandments are, we in the Western world make them as law, do's and don'ts. They're much greater than that. It's God coming down and saying, I love you, I want you to be my bride. That's what this was all about. It's about establishing a relationship with a group of people that he can lead. So imagine, Moses is up there. God, with, the finger, with his own finger, writes these Ten Commandments. I think they had ten on each stone, and God gave him both of them. I don't know if he did or not, but it seems to me that's what he would do. I'll give you both, just like when he made the covenant with Abraham. I will walk through for you. So imagine, he's up there, he gets the law, he comes down, and they've committed adultery, in a sense, on the wedding day. God's own people. And it causes a whole bunch of death. Actually, 3,000. Now, can you connect the story? 3,000 die because they've committed adultery, they committed sin. Now let's fast forward 1,300 years later. 3,000 souls are baptized. It's at Pentecost, the same time. Pentecost was celebrated 1,300 years before Jesus was here. And we think it's something new. Well, I think it came at a bigger, much bigger thing because of the new covenant being ushered in. But it was not something new. I think those disciples knew that something... And I could talk the whole evening about Mount Zion, the beauty of Mount Zion... And how that every, at every Pentecost they would read certain scriptures from the front. And how that the, the glory of God would leave. And then they'd repent and the glory of God had come back. Ezekiel, remember the story of Ezekiel. He saw the glory of God leaving out over the eastern gate, over the Mount of Olives, and it was gone. For 400 years the glory of God didn't come back. And Jesus leaves... And the disciples are excited. Why? Have you thought of that? They went back into Jerusalem rejoicing. They knew it would happen again if they are faithful. So every day they were in the temple, it says the house. I don't put them in. It has to be the temple. There is no way that they would be in a house somewhere when they would anticipate the, the coming of the Holy Spirit because Jesus said it would come. So they come back with great anticipation. And sure enough, whew, comes again. The Ruach of God comes. 
and 3,000 souls are saved. Yes! Story produces story all the way through the Bible, over and over again. So Moses, I love this picture, and he comes down, and, and you got to have, when you, when you have a Jewish wedding, I thought about just talking about a Jewish wedding tonight and the beauty of it, and helping us incorporate that in our, in our weddings. I think we should always have a hoopah. A hoopah is a covering. It's four posts with a covering, and they, it's the blessing of God. The parents from each side would be in the corners holding the post, and the couple goes underneath, and it's called the blessing of God, the covering of God. Did we have a hoopah at Sinai? Well, when you look at the covering, it was covering with smoke all over Sinai, and the people were underneath, in a sense, underneath, waiting for the president or for Moses to come back down. And it goes, we can talk a lot about Sinai. But it didn't stop there. Moses went up about four times. You remember, I think it was the first time he went up. God said, Moses, come up. He comes up. It's a, what is it, almost an eight-hour hike, not maybe a four, at least a four to six-hour hike up the traditional Mount Sinai. Moses, come up here. Moses goes up and God says, go down and tell the people. What? Why didn't you tell me this down there? Why didn't you tell me? Go down and get Aaron. The next time he says, go get Aaron. Well, I could have brought him up the first time. I don't know. I don't know if he argued with God, but think about it. It's, the, it's, it's not even logical to think what happened there, but God was testing Moses, I think, of his faithfulness. So he does us. And then he's up there for 40 days. And what is God doing? There's still something missing. Let me back, back up just a little bit. God said, Israel is my firstborn. And he wants Israel to be a kingdom of priests. And I think they refused to become a kingdom of priests. So God had to, they didn't come near. You remember when God comes down, he, and Moses brought the message up to God one time. He brought the message up. What did the people say? They said, we will do whatever you say. Great. But when the presence of God came down, the people were scared. They were afraid. They said, Moses, you go to the presence of God. We will wait here. Isn't that who we are so often? No, you have devotions. No, you can do it better than I can. Don't we do that all the time? Yeah, we do all the time. Just like Moses, when God called him to come, he said, I can't talk. I, guess I stutter. I got a heavy tongue. And I got excuses and excuses and excuses. And the people acted the same way. Now what are we going to do? I don't think, maybe I'm dead wrong here, but I don't think it was his plan to have just the Levites serve. I think he wanted this whole congregation to be a, a kingdom of priests. And they didn't do it. Now I have to have an alternate plan. So Moses is up there for 40 days, and God is giving him instruction of something. What's he instructing him in? How to build something. And he gives, we have 50 chapters of how to build the tabernacle. And I love it in some sense. Maybe it was because they didn't obey, but I think it's really, really amazing what he did building that to have them build this tabernacle. Well, they assemble the people, they all are in their certain place, and they build a tabernacle, and God's presence. He says he comes down and he dwells among them. 
This is why I think it's the recreation of the creation. In the beginning, God came, spoke, and filled. It didn't work out the best. Now God comes down and he spoke. It says seven times, and God said to Moses. And God said to Moses. I think it starts in about chapter 30. That's maybe in the late 20s somewhere. He'll start talking about, and God said to Moses. Seven times. God said in the beginning, and it was good. Seven times. God says to Moses, what did he finish with in the creation? What was the last thing that we talked about in creation? Let's see if I can find it quick here. I'm not going to go to creation. I want to go to the Exodus here and show you what happened here as well. I think it's pretty phenomenal. I can find it. What, was, what, what happened the seventh day of creation? Rest. Now listen to this. The seventh time, it's in Exodus 31, verse 12, and the Lord spake to Moses, saying, what do you think he's incorporating right after that? The last time he said to Moses, and God spake to Moses, and he spoke this, speak thou also unto the children of Israel, saying, verily my Sabbath shall you keep. Ooh. The same thing he did at creation he is doing here again. This time, something seems to change. Now, he said, you build the tabernacle, and I will come and dwell among you. I'm not going to do it this time. It's up to you. What were the people of Israel doing up to them? Murmuring and complaining about the slightest little thing that went wrong. They even got tired of manna. They got tired of everything else, everything it seemed like. If something, they just murmured. Now God comes and gives them instruction to build a house so that he could dwell there, and they all got busy. They brought their gold and their silver and their bronze, and they had, weight. They had more than they needed. But people were helping. And in that time, I don't hear one thing about murmuring and complaining. They were all helping each other. I thought it was pretty amazing. But that's what happens when we work together like that. The thing that I really like here is how that God brought these Ten Commandments, if you call them that, and made him, made him like the wedding vows. Let me go on here. I always think this is really amazing, how that the bronze altar, the labor, the showbread, the incense altar, and the candlestick, and the Holy of Holies creates a, a cross. I mean, this is all, when you go, if you go through the tabernacle, it's all looking forward to Christ. Everything in there is about that, and it's, it's beautiful. This is the one down in the desert in uh, Israel where we often go to. What I like about this picture, God so cared for his people that he set up this tabernacle and then the glory of God came down. And, and this is a picture, artist rendering. When they dedicated the tabernacle, the glory of God came down so powerful that fire came out of the tabernacle and burned up the altar or the, the sacrifice on the altar. It happened again when Solomon dedicated the temple. Remember in Chronicles, I think it's maybe it's First Chronicles, or it's one of the Chronicles, he talks about that. When he dedicated the temple, whoosh, fire came out and burned up the sacrifice because God's blessing was there. Why the tabernacle? The tabernacle is almost like building your own house. You know, when you buy a house or when you build a house, you want the rooms just right. You want them painted right. You want, and, and especially the women, they want things on the wall that make it homey and just inviting to be there, don't you? 
Absolutely you do. And God, so God gives them the law here, or the thing to do. Now, don't have any other gods before me. Don't take my name in vain. Honor your father and mother. And by the way, I'd like to have a date night every week. It's called the Sabbath. Can you do that for me? Just spend time with me. I want to spend time with you. I call it date night. What did I say? What, what were we saying the other day? It was, I think it was Thursday night we talked about Sabbath, what it really is. It's about bringing life to each other. That's what it's about. And I think to bring life to each other, we have to spend life, time with the Creator. Just rest. And I, if nothing else, that to me is why He created the tabernacle. And it's again the picture of Christ. Because Christ within us creates a rest. And we'll hear about that tomorrow, how that rest is so powerful. All fear is gone. It's just rest. When Jesus truly is here, it's rest. No fear. Doesn't matter what goes on. <coughs> I, had, I saw an article in one of my news, and I don't know if you get Epoch Times, I like Epoch Times. They agreed, I think it's in Illinois, that after school hours, they can have satanic worship. In the school, Satanists, they gave the right... I just, I'm saying, oh my Lord, what is going on? Really? We are so in sin and debauchery here? That almost took my breath away. So God leads his people, or Moses continues to lead his people. Now we know that Moses had to go to Horup one time when they were complaining about water. And if you don't know the geography here, I think it was 12 miles from where they were at to where Moses had to go to strike the rock at Horup the first time. 12 miles to get water to come so they have water. 12 miles! Why not this mountain right beside me where I'm at? Again, it's like going up and coming back down, and going up and coming down. I think it's four times that Moses went up to Sinai. The second time, God took him to a rock, and he said, I want you to speak to the rock. And Moses was so angry with the people. I think I have it here. Numbers 20. And Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels! He was not happy with him. Moses, and there was other stuff going on that we so often miss, or I always miss, but we'll, we'll get there. And Moses lifted his hand, and he struck the rock twice with his rod, and water came out abundantly, and the congregation of the animals drank. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, because you, not, you not be, because you did not believe me to hallow me in the eyes of the children of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I promised you. Why did Moses not just stop? You ever think of that? What made Moses continue on when he knew he was not going to lead him in anywhere? What would you and I do? If we're told, you have no, you're, you're, just, you're not going to make it to where you wanted to go, period. What did we do? What kept Moses leading those people? What do you think? 
really good. Was Moses leading for himself or was he leading for the people? I think, I think what you said is dead on, but I think Moses wasn't leading for himself. It was not about Moses. It was about the people. Look how he stood in the gap, how often he stood in the gap. God said, I'm going to destroy him. Moses said, no, you won't. Take my name out of the book of life. There is so much in that, so much like Jesus. He led till he was finished. I love the picture of what God does in the desert. The other thing is, why was Moses so frustrated? I shouldn't tell you. You should just go read it before. What had happened just before this? He lost someone really, really important that died just before this story. <coughs> Miriam. Miriam? The Jewish people think this. I don't know. It's interesting, Midrash. They say it was Miriam was responsible for water. And all of a sudden, Miriam's gone. I don't know if she was or not. But she was, she was important to Moses. I think she kept Moses in line in a lot of ways. All of a sudden, Miriam's gone. And he's, he, he doesn't know where he's going. He lost this. It's like your biggest adversary sometimes. You know, rabbis in, in the school, way before Jesus' time, it was Rabbi Akiva and Rabbi uh, Shemiah. Shemiah was, you never change anything. Akiva was, yeah, we can be progressive and we find new ways of doing things. And so this school was going back and forth all the time. But they were always butting heads together. Uh, it wasn't him, but it was a situation like that. And one of the rabbis dies. And the other rabbi is just, just, He's just not himself. And the disciples come to him and say, Rabbi, why are you so upset? Or why are you so downcast? Your enemy is gone. He says, no, it wasn't my enemy. It was the one that kept me on the narrow road. We don't like that, do we? When there's someone that can just find something wrong with you or disagree with you just every time you say something, you know what? That's who my fellow minister and I are each other, literally. We'll do that to each other. It took us a long time. We fought viciously. A few years ago, we thought we're not going to make it together. But we had promised each other not to quit. And we didn't. We got through it. Now it's amazing. It's okay because it keeps us on the narrow way. Vernon never prays for me without crying. I rarely do with him. Because we fought the battle so hard. If we can see what Jesus did for us, he did the same thing. Look at all the battles he fought. Look at Moses. He didn't quit. He could have quit. I have, I can take you to three resignations I've made. I had three times I wrote it down. I resigned at 12 o'clock at night or 1 o'clock at night, and I was done. I never quit. All right. God bless you, honestly. 
you don't quit. It's not in our vocabulary. Shouldn't be. Excuse me. He split the rocks in the wilderness. He gave them drink abundantly as from the deep. That's how God does for us. It's amazing. Water comes right out of the rock. He made the springs come out of the rock and caused waters to flow down like rivers. I like this one. This is in Getty. That's what he does in the middle of the desert. He, when we need water, he gives us water. When we need shade, he brings us shade. When, whatever we need, when we walk faith, he will give it to us. He even says, I never saw my children lacking bread. Do we trust him so much? This is right out of the rock. It's not out of, you can, when I walk back in through, I always look and try to find better, I wish I'd have more pictures, water literally coming right out of the rock. And we could talk about that again, but this, this story here, yeah, this is Mennonites. They can make a lot of noise. And we were hiking, this is in 2008. We hiked in Getty and all around in Getty, and it was 110 or 15 degrees that day, and it was just hot. I mean, it was, we were tired. And, and Ray Vanderlaan, he's, he's, he's crazy. But anyway, we got back and said, we got to eat. We got one more hike to do. Oh, the groaning. Everybody's, not everybody, but a lot of people were groaning. And I was facilitator on that trip, which I'm always at the tail end. And so we, I get them, try to cheer them up, and we have to make this hike yet. And we start down this wadi, back in, back in. And people are murmuring and complaining. We can't go farther. I said, come on, let's keep going, let's keep going. I can't go farther. One sits here. They just stop. And then another one stops. And another one. And finally, Ray gets on the two-way. He says, Joe, where you at? I said, I don't know. I'm trying to get this herd to move. I can't get them to move. And we got up to the top, close to... And we had seen some Israeli soldiers go back in, and we got close to where we wanted to go, and I heard this noise. And I figured, okay, it's these soldiers. And, there's, and there was one other lady there yet with me, and she, she's, we were almost there, and, and a guy comes in. He's got to hurry. We've got to get out of here before it, so it'll get dark. And she said, I'm not going one step farther. This is a Mennonite lady, a Beechee lady. You know. I said, come on. We're almost there. I'm not moving. Okay. And it was, she, was, she was hot. Oh, I, I still laugh at her. I still rub it in. So I run down, and lo and behold, this is what I see when I come down there. The Mennonites were making a ruckus like I've never heard before. But let me tell you something. God put the water in the desert for a reason. Standing underneath that water was the most life-changing thing I, I think I ever did. We were tired, not after that. We were rejoicing for those that didn't go in. I didn't pity one bit. I said, it's your own fault if you're tired. And he, that's the only reason. It was a two-and-a-half-hour hike back there. And you know what? We went, there was nobody tired that was under the water. We just had a blast. We get up on top, and this lady is still fuming. And she said, aren't there enough graves back in, in the United States? Oh, it was funny. But I wish I would have had a five-gallon bucket of water. I would have dumped it right over her. It spikes me that I didn't. But think about it. God wants so much to delight us in the journey. And so often we don't go to the place that he can delight in us. We stop just a little bit short. And we say we can't do it. I can't. 
can't, should not be in our vocabulary. I'm going to try. I'm going to give it all I got. Because that's what God did for me, and that's what I will do for him as well. I like this picture. <clears throat> no, let's go one farther here. For my people have committed, I don't like it, but this is true. For my people have committed two evils. They have forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and have hewn for them cisterns, broken cisterns that hold no water. And that's who we so often are. Our own righteousness seems better than letting God's righteousness being imputed in us. And you know what happened with Abraham when he believed God? It was imputed to him for righteousness, and so it will be with us. So instead of hewing cisterns ourselves when we go through the desert, let's find, let's find the springs of water that God wants to water us with. And so is the desert. It's an amazing journey through the desert. You, keep, you, you walk through the desert, and it's Jesus was there. He knows all about it, and he is trying to shape us yet today. So let's switch from that. Let's continue on. Now we're getting into the life of Christ. So God set it up beautiful at Sinai so that when Jesus comes, we could at least know who's coming and who's here, I think. That's the picture I get. Maybe that's why the tabernacle was raised like that. John 1, or 1 John 2, 6, he says, If you say that you abide in me, you must walk as Jesus walked. That's a weighty, weighty quote or verse from John. How did he walk? Let's see. Let's see how he walked and how he started shaping the church with what he did when he was here. This is a topography of, of Galilee, where Jesus spent, at least the scholars think, 85% of his time. Why did he do it here instead of Judea? Well, we'll talk about that. So here's Nazareth. Here's the Jezreel Valley. Here's Mount Carmel. And north of here would have probably been uh, Cana. I like the story of Cana. But Jesus was here. Here's Capernaum. That's where, no, excuse me, here's Capernaum. It's where Jesus' home was or where Peter's home was, where they think that Jesus stayed. Well, he stayed there. We know that. But here's where he spent time, Capernaum, Chorazin, Bethsaida, the triangle, they call it the religious triangle of the Jews of Galilee. But Jesus wasn't all the places. Now, on this side of the sea was the far country called the Decapolis, the pagans, lived here. Percy, Susita, and Betching. Now, that was on the other side here, but the other ten Decapolis cities, Decapolis means ten pagan cities, were all over here. And we'll read, we'll maybe get to some of that as well. Here is from north to south, Sea of Galilee up here. You've got the Great Rift Valley, then the Dead Sea down here. The Sea of Galilee is like 600 and some feet below sea level. The Dead Sea is 1,300 and some feet below sea level. So think about it. It's the lowest place on the earth. And plus, I don't know how deep it is. It's a few hundred feet deep yet. So that's a very low place. And that valley, the Rift Valley, goes all the way down to Kenya, Africa. It's amazing. Starts here. Now you have, of course, here is Jordan. Here's the Judean wilderness. This is where Jesus would have went. Jerusalem would be right in here. And Jesus was somewhere here in the wilderness. And the Judean mountains, the Shephelah, which is the low-lying area, and the coastal plains. 
And not much has changed today. It's still that way. The conservative people are here. The liberal people are here. And the middle in between are kind of up here. Maybe, you know, there's, anyhow, it's a mix, but it hasn't changed. The, the, the Philistines are still here. I mean, the gay uh, Tel Aviv is the worst city of lesbian and gays of anywhere in the world. Homosexuality. It's terrible there. And I don't know in the Jewish world why that is so much there. Because when the father is missing is usually why that happens. And in the Jewish world, it's not so much that. I don't know why it is, but it's, it's very pagan. But in, it separates in Jerusalem. But Jerusalem, that's not, you know, I'm sure there's some there. But the other battle here is Jerusalem, is East Jerusalem, is, is Arab, and West Jerusalem is, is Jewish. And so that battle is going on there. So this is the, that's the layout of Israel a lot. There's, there'll be a lot more. So let's talk a little bit what Jesus was confronted with, especially in the beginning. He was confronted with a man by the name of Herod. Why did God bring Herod in at the time of Jesus' birth? Herod the Great. So Herod built these huge structures. Out here, you can see this mountain from 20 miles away. It's called the Herodian. On top of that, he built a huge structure. This is part of the road. It's 42 acres. Herod actually had seven fortresses. Seven fortresses. The smallest one, I think, was seven acres. Uh, near, I mean, the Roman Emperor had one fortress, and it was three acres. That was just strange things going on here. So what was Herod trying to do here? But why was he here when Jesus came? That's why I like it. And we'll just do a quick snapshot. Here, this is part of the Herodian with a huge pool here, the colonnade, colonnades, there was a roof over top of this whole thing, gardens, and on top of this, he had this kind of a structure. It was his, probably his prized possession place to be. Herod had 800 elite soldiers, German soldiers to protect him, so I don't know if they were here a lot, but this structure is still partly there. Of course, he built the, the Masada as well. On top of Masada, 23 acres, there's pools there, there's water storage there, there's houses there. It's insane what he built. He said they had enough, there are cisterns along the side here that he could take water up. He had enough water he could, and food he could store up there for like 20 years for 10,000 soldiers or something like that. It was just mind-boggling. Of course, the Romans came in in 73 AD. This is the Roman ramp, still there. From 73 AD, there's like 900 zealots on top of here, zealot Jews on top, and Titus came in and pressed in and wiped them out eventually. But that was one of his. Here's another one along the sea coast, the Mediterranean Sea. He built this structure. I think there's all these arches, and I think it was like a seven-mile or 14-mile aqueduct above ground to bring water into Caesarea Martina along the coast. This is Herod. Here is Jerusalem, the wall in Jerusalem down below, which would have been in Jesus' time. This stone is 49 feet, 6 inches long. It's 10 and a half feet high and about that deep. It's not the bottom stone on the wall. This whole wall is amazing. It's a Herod wall. How did they move stones like that? So here's Herod, this puppet of Rome, and he is building these huge fortresses and structures. He brought marble in from 900 miles away, beautiful marble, and he wrapped his pillars with this marble in Caesarea. He said it glistened like the sun in the morning. It was like, I'm not sure what they call it. It was beautiful. All these structures. And one night, something strange happens. 
angel appears, and he starts singing to or making a proclamation to shepherds. Glory to God in the highest. And he says, there's a king born. Where's he born? Well, somewhere in a manger. Somewhere in a sheepfold. A king is born. Wow. We're going to go look. He's lying in a manger, wrapped in swaddling clothes, which means much more than I'm going to have time to talk about. But I like this picture. The, the, it was close to Bethlehem. This is in Bethlehem. Jesus was born in Bethlehem. Why would he be born in Bethlehem right where Herod's biggest fortress is? It's just the beauty of God. And who was Herod? He was an Edomite. Who were the Edomites from? Where did Jesus' lineage come out of? Which brother? Jacob? Who were the Edomites? Ah, descendants of Esau. Isn't that amazing? So here we have it, coming together for the, I think, the last time in a sense. It was just this beautiful. Now the epic battle is going, who is king? And that's the question we have in our lives today. Who is your king? Is it Herod? Or is it Jesus? Is it the Edomite? Or is it the Israelite? And we know who became the king that you and I serve today because there is only one king. So let's see what Jesus did. As he came, he walked along the sea. He saw Simon, Peter, and Andrew, his brother. They were casting nets into the sea, for they were fishers. And he said to them, follow me, and I will make you fishers of men. And they followed him right away. They left and followed him. And straightway they left their nets and followed him. And he says in Jeremiah, Behold, I send you many fishers, says the Lord, for they shall fish them, means that they shall fish for men. So we have proof in the Old Testament that he's going to call fishers. Now in the, in the Jewish world, a rabbi would not likely go and call disciples. Disciples would come to the rabbi. They would study, and we'll get to that. And then the rabbi could choose who he wants. Here, the rabbi just walks along the seashore and says, Lechakarai which means, come, follow me. And Peter and Andrew, and Andrew had found Jesus before. When you read the scripture, he was with John the Baptist, and, and John said, behold, the Lamb of God. And so Andrew, Andrew comes to Peter and says, we found the Lord. We found the Messiah. And I, I can see Peter saying, ah, that baloney. We'll see. Anyway, it, it happened. And Jesus took him on to the Sermon on the Mount, and he goes up, and he sits there, and he starts talking, teaching them, and, and so it goes. So let's see what happens as he teaches his, uh, what a rabbi does for his disciples. The interpretation of a rabbi is his yoke. What did Jesus say? Now imagine this. It was also in the time when there was zealots. There was four groups of people, four groups of Jews. You had the zealots, you had the Pharisees, the Sadducees, and you had the Essenes. The zealots were the ones that they carried a little knife. I forgot to bring my little knife along. But they carried this little knife underneath them or somewhere. And when they saw a Sadducee, they hated the Sadducees because they're profaning the temple. You've got to get rid of them. So they just killed them. But they were also these, these little rebels that would, they hated the Romans. So they'd come into the Roman posts at night or they'd sneak in and kill the Romans and leave. 
And they were getting the Romans pretty angry. And Jesus comes along and he says, take my yoke upon you and learn of me. Why? Because I'm meek and lowly and you will find rest for your souls. He also says something else. There was a law, there was a Roman law, that if they ask you to pack their bag for a mile, you had to do it or you're going to be in trouble. It didn't matter if you were going this way and a Roman soldier comes this way, you lay your pack down and you carry his pack a mile or whichever way he's going. It doesn't matter if you're going with him or against then Jesus comes along and says, well, if he says one, go two. What? What? I think the Romans loved it. I don't know that the zealots did, but that's where Jesus comes into. So now he calls his disciples, and then he makes disciples, which is, means to follow my example. That's what making disciple is. Our children are our best disciples, or should be, because you'll see in your children who you are. And you... Mm, you know, I see it sticking out all over my children and my grandchildren. And some are like, oh, no, I wish it wouldn't be that way. You want them to follow your example. You're to be covered by the dust of your rabbi, the teacher, which means to us is Jesus. And I think it's good to have someone mentoring you. Do you have a mentor? Do you have someone that pushes into you and helps you be covered with the dust of the rabbi? See, I think Peter lost his way and he was following Jesus from afar off. If we're right behind him and covered with the... Why is it so important? Because you want to hear the prayer. A rabbi has a prayer for everything, even when he goes to the bathroom. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us holes in our body. And, you know, we kind of chuckle at that, but uh, when one doesn't work, it's not really fun. We should bless God for everything that he gives us. They have a prayer for everything. Blessed are you, Lord God, King of the universe, who gives us the fruit of the vine, or bread from the earth, or healthy bodies, or whatever it is. And so the disciples wanted to be close to that rabbi so they could be like him. That's why they wanted to follow a rabbi. And he's consumed to be like the rabbi. It's not just a teacher. Because we'll see. And you know what? Being a disciple is not just an accident. You choose to be a disciple, you discipline yourself to be there, you focus on the mark, and you act intentionally. Discipline. I mean, it's not fun to go running at 10 degrees, but I did. Maybe that's why I can't. No, it's not. That's why I can. That's how I look at it. I'm going to run again tomorrow morning. I don't care if my throat is bad or not. It's called discipline. It's called creating habits that make you better. And to be a disciple, you have to discipline yourself. How do I memorize? How can I remember this? Because it's discipline. Now, pictures are easy to remember. They give you a thousand words every picture, so it's kind of simple, really. But you still have to give yourself. You'll never, you'll never do it if you don't. And people say, well, I can't, I can't memorize. That's a lie. That's a lie. Every brain can memorize. There is nothing like a dumb brain. Now, I know our capabilities are different. Some I know that. But don't say you can't. Because then you can't. You will believe that lie. Don't say words that are nasty to yourself. Because that creates a groove. And I'm still trying to 
feel the groove in my brain because I would condemn myself a hundred times a day. You dummy. You're just, you just don't get it. You're just a loser. And that's who I was until I changed. At the end of, at, in 2008, I hit rock bottom. I was dead broke. I was in debt big, bigger than I thought I could ever get out of. And some young man saw something in me that he believed in me. He was smarter than I was. And he said, Joe, let me help you. And I had a choice to let him help me or stay in poverty. Today he's our CEO. And he's like my son. That's what rabbis and disciples do. Where am I at? Uh, I'm going backwards, sorry. Discipleship. What is a disciple? It's a Talmud. Talmudim. Jesus had Talmudim. They would go to synagogue all the time and they would go to school. Let me just quickly go through these schools and then we'll probably got to stop tonight. And we'll pick up this tomorrow morning, the life of Jesus and how I think he developed the church and how the church grew out of what he did and we'll try to stop in Asia Minor in one of the churches, maybe the Church of Ephesus. It starts with Beth Sefer. Now, this is, it's really amazing how that our schools are actually patterned after this. What does God taste like? And maybe I shouldn't do it. Maybe I should not talk about this. You know what? I won't talk about that. And I'll do that for children's class tomorrow morning. I'll talk about that. They had ele elementary students. They had a place of reading, learning scripture, boys and girls the ages 5 to 12. Now, look what happened. Look how they learned math. One God, two tablets, three patriarchs, four mothers, five books, six pagan nations, seven days of the week, eight is the new beginning, nine is Beatitudes, ten is spies, and twelve is tribes. So if you want to do math, you say God plus tablets equals what? Patriarchs. Or tablets plus patriarchs equals the five books of Moses. And all... That's how they learn in Scripture. That's why they know that the children all know this stuff in the Bible. That's how they learn. Imagine us doing math and multiplication that way. That'd be pretty amazing. That's why they know the Bible. Now, I don't know that they do this as much anymore, but this is done in grade school from first grade to maybe sixth grade. That's what they do. Or they used to do that. The other thing that's done there is 20... Oh, I think it's more than 20%, but a lot of their time is spent outside the classroom studying. So think about it. If you have something neat, and we do field trips, which I think is good, but they would go out and study. I remember Ray sharing one time, they, he had a, a group of students, he took them along the Sea of Galilee, and he said, let's have a quiet morning. And he said that no more than just settle down, and you hear this noise, and here comes a, a, a schoolroom full of students. Grade, grade school fifth graders, whoever. And in that culture, everybody's talking at once. Actually, that's what you do when you get to school on a, on a Monday morning. Everybody talks. The teacher says, what did you do? And everybody starts talking. And he'll come around if somebody's not talking. Why aren't you, not, why aren't you talking? Imagine the chaos. But that's, in a sense, that's who they are. It gets everybody to loosen up. <clears throat> so that's grade school. The next one is we would call the upper school, place of explaining. Now it gets deeper where boys and girls both are, but a lot of the girls get married. By the age of 16, 
girls would marry already in that culture. They still do in the Bedouin culture, which is kind of crazy. Not as much as they used to, but they still do. They learn the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. They, they learn that, and then they learn the family trade, which is really, really important because not everybody's going to go to become a rabbi because it's too hard, and this is why. I'll show you. The Bet Midrash, which is the hardest one. In Jesus' time, they say one in 10,000 would have made it because if you want to go to that kind of a school, you have to know the Torah by heart before you get to a rabbi. And then he will ask you, he will ask you the questions of Amos or of Habakkuk or of Micah. What does this say and what does that say? And how many times is this mentioned in Amos or what? And you better know, you better know. Because those rabbis, they want students not to be a sponge, but like a sieve that only lets through what's good or holds back what's good. The rest is gone. A sponge takes everything in and they don't know where they're going. So they don't want a sponge. They don't want a funnel. A sponge takes everything in. A funnel lets everything out. But a sieve that lets just either the good through or keeps the good and lets the, the bad go through. That's what they were looking for. So you'd have to be really, really brilliant to make it. And I remember Ray Vanderlaan, his first test he took, which he was not, he's, he's a Christian from Holland, Michigan. Was he, I think he had six questions right out of 100. And his prof told him, his teacher said, you'll never make it. But he did. He got all the tests right. He got certified to be like a Jewish rabbi. He didn't become one because he's not a rabbi. He's a teacher. And he's a Christian. <clears throat> but it's interesting. It's really, really hard. And it's 15 years. Now think of Jesus again. This is normal. 15 years. From 15 to 30, you sit under a rabbi. You don't have any credentials. You can't be teaching much until you're 30 in the Jewish world. I think it's really interesting. Something we might even look into because by the time you're 30, you're kind of set. You're kind of in place that you've learned a lot of things and you're ready to lead quick more so. And they moved in with the rabbi. Now, after 15 or 16 in that age, the rabbi becomes the main important person. If, you, if your rabbi and your father would be out on a boat and the boat at tip, who would the student now first rescue? The rabbi, not the dad. Because the dad is the one that brought me into the first life, the rabbi is taking me to the second life. Who's responsible? That's an interesting... I don't know that I agree with that, but it's... It's how they were dead. You just know what this rabbi thinks. And you just want to become like him. They studied to inter interpret the Torah and the Tanakh, which is the Old Testament. And they give their entire life to learn the text. Remember when I said David Flusser knew, if I'm correct, knew the, the text in seven different languages, the whole Old Testament and most of the New? Actually, he, they think he was a believer at the end. He did believe. It's quite interesting. And he was a, a rough character, but by studying the text with Christians for so long, he finally saw the Messiah. And that's pretty exciting to me, that a person like that. So the Talmudian is you become a disciple, so you need a rabbi to be that. Now, there were two kinds of rabbis. The one rabbi would just teach what, what the, the doctrine or the theology. You can't go outside of that. You own what's written... Uh, and interpreted by the priests before you can't. The other rabbi that had shmicha, which was ordained, and he had two witnesses. You always have to have two witnesses that you were ordained, that you were a rabbi, which Jesus had, John, and the voice from heaven. 
And that's why they always question Jesus, remember? How do you get this authority? Interesting. He had this authority because Jesus said, this is what has been written, but I say unto you. Now that's another reason he was in Galilee a lot. The Galilean Jews were more progressive Jews that came out of Babylon. And the, the other Jews, the, the Judean Jews, were the very conservative Jews that never changed anything. So Jesus spends his time in Galilee because those people would listen. And that's the smartest, the brainy people were up in Capernaum anyway. That's where the Harvard and the Yale was at the time. So why would Jesus not be there among the most learned and his disciples there? Remember when Jesus was gone and the disciples were teaching and, and they said, you know what, we do remember they were with Jesus. But they're fishermen. How do they know this stuff? I just, that's pretty interesting because they only had three years, remember that, not 15. And now they were set loose to go change the world in three years. Like I said, Torah teachers are only Torah, but the rabbis with Shmiha could interpret the Tanakh the way they felt it should be interpreted. So there you are. And you, he went to synagogue. I'll, I'll, I'll stop this one. I like this one. He went to Nazareth. He went to Nazareth, and he started there. In a sense, he started there with some of his disciples, and you know what happened. He came in, and he started reading the word, and Moses Moses, see, this is actually, this is Capernaum here. Uh, uh, a, a, a normal, but this is Moses' seat. This is actually Chorazin. And they gave him the scroll, and he opened the scroll and started reading. And what did he read? Jeremiah 61. The Lord has anointed me to bring good tidings to the poor, and, and on goes and to teach. And he sits down. And all eyes were fixed on him because at that point, they were still pretty excited. They were, I think they might have been saying, yes, we knew he would come from here. And then he starts talking. And he said, but you will not accept me. I won't do any miracles here. And they got angry with him. And they took him out to the brow of the hill to stone him. But you've got to have two witnesses before you can push someone overboard to stone him. And it seems nothing happened. And I don't know how this all happened, but it, it, here's how I see it. And it's, this is my interpretation. He goes with his disciples. Come on, let's go. And he just walks through the crowd. I don't know if it was that way or not. But he left, and he was very seldom back. How is it with us? So often, those closest, closest to us you know, it's easy for you to listen to me these few days. What if I would live among you all the time? It's much harder. And I think that's why Jesus really came. So that we could lay down our lives for our brothers and sisters that are among us. The most important ones in our lives. Why do we struggle so much in our own churches? Because we have a hard time loving each other because we know so much about each other. And when I, I can get up and preach in front of you, I can say anything because I don't know a thing what's going on in your heart yet. Now, I might a little bit here. But the rest of you, I don't know. But what if I know you? And not one Sunday morning I get up and I hit you square between the eyes of what I said. 
How are you going to take that? It's exactly what Jesus did in Nazareth. And they got angry and they kicked him out. And so often that's what happens. So as we think of how God formed the church, if you want to be like Jesus, you must walk as Jesus walked. And it means to be covered by the dust of the rabbi. Let's pray. Father, as we bow before you, we thank you that you are our rabbi. We thank you that you came to give us life and more abundant life. And Father, as we learn the text, as we pray the text, as we memorize it, as we live it out, as we teach it, I pray that we would walk it out. That's the most important. Help us to be a people that continually is shaped by the yoke of our master. That we take that yoke upon us, that we are meek and lowly in heart. And that we help people see the power of rest. God has instituted in the beginning. He instituted in Sinai. And now he's done it again when he brings Jesus and Jesus went to the cross one final time so that we could have rest in our hearts. And I pray tonight that as we rest spiritually, physically, that you could deeply, that we could deeply look into our recesses of our hearts and say, how much or how well do we love each other? And help us to be honest with each other. And to let the Master come into our hearts in new ways and finding ways that can just be kind and gentle and loving. Father, go with us as we go. In Jesus' name, our Messiah, we pray. Amen. Let me give you a story. <coughs>